This episode features secret FBI recordings that contain profanity and other offensive language. We're including them in their unedited form to convey the full impact of this hateful rhetoric. From ABC Audio, this is Truth and Lies, The Informant, Episode 2, Dangerous Dan. By the time Dan Day agreed to be an FBI informant, back in 2015, Ifra Ahmed had already lived in Garden City for a couple of years. My whole life I've been a nomad, but Kansas became my home. She'd grown used to seeing many faces that reminded her of Somalia, the place where she was born, but ultimately had to flee. Many of her neighbors were refugees as well. A lot of the people here had a home at some point in their life, and that was taken away from them, and they had nothing. And so coming here allowed them to reestablish that, allowed them to build that home again. Building a home in a foreign place can be difficult, and that was certainly true for Ifra. But it's especially difficult if you don't understand the language. Ifra did, and that set her apart. So, like, one morning I would hear somebody just knock my door and they're like, I got a letter, I don't understand what they're saying, can you read this to me? Or I have a doctor's appointment, I need to fill this paperwork. And so, me and a couple of friends um, decided that we needed to have a community that there was not just me, it was more of us. We could support the community and help the community. They are like, well, you're more outspoken. You understand the language and we need somebody to lead us. And I I thought, okay, okay, this is going to be a big responsibility, but I will do my very best. And so Ifra became the leader of the community, a community she had yearned for since arriving in Kansas. Here I was needed. And so that kind of made me come back to life, you know. And there was plenty of life in this neighborhood. Many Somalis relocated here after a meatpacking plant in another town had shut down. They were offered bonuses to transfer to a plant near Garden City. Here, they were given a designated room to pray, equipped with everything they needed, prayer mats, and even a compass that could point them toward Mecca. After a day at the plant, some Somalis would gather at a small shop on West Mary Street that sold items imported from Africa, teas, spices, rugs, and clothing. There was a room in the back where they would hang out and socialize with their neighbors. And down the street from the shop, there was the apartment complex where many Somali immigrants lived. Ifra was happy to see a Somali community thriving in Garden City, but she didn't want them to keep to themselves. So she worked with people outside of the neighborhood to bridge the two worlds. We would celebrate the Somali Independence Day all together, and we would invite all of our American friends, and they would celebrate with us. But that didn't mean everyone welcomed Ifra and her neighbors. One time, when she tried to rent a new apartment, the landlord was agreeable when she inquired over the phone. But when he saw her in person, he said, no Somalis need apply. Another time, while Ifra was shopping at Target with a friend, 
A security guard refused to let them into a fitting room. He even demanded they leave. His reason? He was following his gut and didn't trust them. These people viewed Somalis with a suspicious eye, in large part because of what they believed in. That suspicion didn't just exist in Garden City. Across the United States, there were obvious signs of a pervasive distrust of Muslims, or of just about anybody who looked like they were from a Muslim-majority country. To some people, immigrants like Ifra were a threat. But Ifra sees this as ridiculous. Because when you're a refugee, you just want safety. The first thing is safety, a place to call home. Terrorism and all of that is the last thing on your mind. Absolutely, it's like people who are just trying to survive. What are you talking about being terrorist? And that's the key word here, terrorist. We want to tell you what we know as we know it, but we just got a report in that there's been some sort of explosion at the World Trade Center in New York City. Before 2001, Muslims weren't all categorically presumed to be terrorists. It really did ebb and flow based on the international events. That's Sahar Aziz. She's a Rutgers University law professor and director of the Center for Security, Race, and Rights. 9-11 took this temporal, cyclical form of stereotyping against Muslims and made it permanent. Professor Aziz says that after 9-11, the stereotyping against Muslims was not only permanent, but pervasive. Almost immediately in their daily lives, Muslims in America faced frightening fallout for the horrific attacks that had killed nearly 3,000 people. Attacks they had nothing to do with. Mosques were being vandalized. Uh, Women who wore hijab were starting to be physically attacked, which they had rarely if ever experienced. Before 9-11, they might get dirty looks, they might get stares, they might get awkward questions or even rude questions. But to have to experience the real risk of being attacked in public was new uh, for Muslims in America, for Muslim women in particular. September 12, 2001. In Utah, a Pakistani family's restaurant was set ablaze. The man behind the crime pleaded guilty. He said he did it in retaliation for 9-11. September 27th, 2001. In California, a note that said, we're going to kill all Arabs, was left on the windshield of a Yemeni man's car. He was shot to death outside his convenience store two days later. September 20th, 2004. In Texas, children were playing outside an Islamic daycare center when a homemade firebomb was tossed at them. Those are just a few of the attacks on Muslims following 9-11 from a pool of many, many more. Professor Aziz vividly remembers what this time was like for her and her family. We also were extremely concerned about our children, and they were being bullied in the schools because their 
classmates were told that Muslims are terrorists. And that then shifts the burden on each individual Muslim to have to prove, no, I am loyal. No, I don't support terrorism. No, my religion does not teach me to engage in politically motivated violence. And that's a tremendous burden to have to carry. Nonetheless, Muslims were seen as dangerous, not just by their fellow Americans, but also by those in government charged with safeguarding the nation's security. Just a little over a month after 9-11, Congress passed the Patriot Act, which, to put it simply, increased surveillance of Americans who were suspected of terrorism. And that includes any online activity, phone calls, text messages, forums, and apps. Professor Aziz says that this, along with other measures, ultimately led to sting operations that used informants to spy on Muslim communities. A large number of those are what I interpret as predatory fake terrorist plots, where the FBI sends its undercover agents and its informants who effectively entrap individuals, Muslims in particular. Some Muslims would eventually sue the government for spying on them in their communities, especially places of worship, and some would win. But the damage was already done. In a mosque, for instance, not only do Muslims pray, but they also speak to the imam, confide in him, and ask for advice. But ever since Muslims realized that there were informants among them, they, understandably, feared that anything they said could be used against them. That creates a chilling effect. That caused many Muslims to be afraid to go to the mosque. It caused Muslims to go to the mosque and just pray and not speak to anyone. They didn't know who was an informant and who wasn't an informant. They didn't believe that the mosque was a safe space. And sadly, that's exactly the type of environment that the, those who were immigrants had experienced in their home countries that were authoritarian. And that's the travesty. But Professor Aziz says that wasn't the only repercussion. Focusing in only on Muslim communities violates Muslims' civil liberties and causes them to experience second-class citizenship. But it also under-polices and leaves to grow other types of domestic threats, including far-right-wing extremist groups. Right-wing extremism is as American as an apple pie. While the FBI focused on suspected foreign terrorists, homegrown militia groups had room to grow, largely offstage and out of the spotlight. In Garden City, for instance, there was an uptick in activity among groups such as the Three Percenters. The FBI noticed this but had to make sure agents weren't stepping on First Amendment rights. The right to form a militia was constitutional, so it's not like the FBI could just shut them down. Former Prosecutor Tony Mativi, the assistant U.S. attorney based in Topeka, says there was a fine line they couldn't cross. There's a significant legal issue when you're doing those investigations because unless they are threatening violence, then what those folks are doing is constitutionally protected. But something about these particular three percenters had caught the FBI's attention. At first, the militia members were talking about surveillance, 
But by the time Dan Day signed on as an informant, that talk had turned into action. FBI agent Robin Smith says that action went beyond just watching someone from a street corner. Some members of the three percenters would split up into groups and stake out places where Somalis would gather. That African shop, the mosque, and the apartment complex on West Mary Street. The group would communicate with each other using radios because they didn't want to be tracked by law enforcement. And they were doing all of this armed. The three percenters were suspicious of why the Somalis would spend so much time in the back room of that shop. Or they'd suspect something other than praying was happening in the mosque. This idea of surveying Muslims was not original. I want surveillance of these people that are coming in, the Trojan horse. I want to know who the hell they are. We have to use surveillance. We have to be vigilant. And you know the greatest thing is... And so they pushed ahead and continued to surveil their Muslim neighbors. That sort of surveillance was something the FBI now wanted Dan, the nervous 47-year-old family man turned informant, to document. So as far as FBI agents Robin Smith and Amy Kuhn were concerned, it was crucial that Dan infiltrate the three percenters by becoming a member. And when he did, the group seemed to welcome him with open arms. They called him Dangerous Dan. Oh yeah, I'm talking the talk. I'm in, you know, I guess you could say like as an actor, I was put myself fully into it, you know, I was learning about it. I'd also became, they'd asked me to become a, their vetting officer and intelligence officer, which was great for my part. <laughs> Jason Crick, leader of the local three percenters, was indeed impressed by Dan's steady demeanor. So much so that, as Dan just said, Jason trusted him to vet potential new members, to decide who could and could not join the group. He was fully in, and just in time, the group started conducting surveillance of the Somalis' most cherished places, the mosque, the apartment complex, the businesses owned by friends and neighbors, Dan tagged along. We went over there three or four times, and we'd go at night. Everybody had radios. They'd watch from their stores, watch, you know, what they were doing, try to follow them, borderline harass them. As far as these three percenters were concerned, the Muslims were either outright terrorists or secretly aiding terrorists, and the militia needed to do something about it. Despite going into the Somali-owned stores himself and being met with nothing but hospitality, Jason Crick refused to believe the shop was just a shop. And there was no convincing him that nothing but peaceful prayer was happening at the mosque. In fact, a rumor was going around that there was an ISIS training ground near Garden City. Jason Crick was so convinced of it, he sent Dan to check it out. And Dan was so convinced there was no real danger that he brought his son Brandon along with him. For them, it was an adventure. When the two toured the area in Dan's Chevy Blazer truck, all they found was a group of paintballers. Even though Dan didn't find what Jason was looking for, it still marked an important shift. 
Jason Crick had been ordering stakeouts and becoming more heated over the perceived Muslim threat. So Robin and Amy felt there was enough to have the FBI open a formal investigation into the three percenters. Amy and I compiled what we do of the individuals involved in their activities. And we presented that for review to our chief division counsel up in Kansas City. We wanted to make sure that we were righteously looking at Mr. Crick and his compatriots' activities within 3% of Southwest Kansas for the activity that they were taking towards the Somali immigrant community and not because they were militia members. With an official investigation now in place, things were getting serious for Amy and Robin. And they started escalating for Dan as well. Some folks don't stop searching till they find the truth. If you've got a detective's eye, June's Journey is the game for you. Play as June Parker in a gripping murder mystery as you find hidden objects to help solve her sister's death. You'll hunt for clues in hundreds of beautifully illustrated scenes set in the roaring 20s. New chapters are added weekly. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices as well as on PC through Facebook games. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. Before the FBI opened its official investigation of the three percenters, Dan Day had been working on his persona, on fitting in with the group. Now, Dan was about to get his first real taste of informant work and put this new persona to the test. One day, one of the three percenters excitedly told Dan about something he found abandoned in a field. Claymore mines. Dan knew what they were. Claymore mines weren't something that anybody could get their hands on. They're dangerous explosives used by the military and detonated by a remote control. This allowed you to kill your target without being near it. Dan was shocked. What was this man doing with those? It turned out the man was actually nervous about this find. He knew Claymore mines were illegal to have, but he didn't know what to do with them, so he thought Dan might want them for the three percenters. Dan devised a plan. He assured the guy he'd take them off his hands. But the Claymore mines weren't bound for any militia. On the day of the exchange, Dan pulled up outside the guy's house. The guy came out, got in Dan's car, and left the package on the front seat. Dan gave the guy a warning before he left. He was never to mention this exchange to Jason Crick or any of the other three percenters. Dan told a cover story for the reason why. He had cousins in Oklahoma who would know exactly what to do with the dangerous explosives. 
but the minds weren't going to these cousins either. When Dan drove away and around the corner from where the exchange took place, he was swarmed by FBI agents. When the agents carefully opened the package, they found... Claymore Mines? Not even close. Inside were fuses that could be used to detonate a mine. Basically harmless stuff. The Claymore mine incident didn't amount to much, but it was a good lesson for Dan. He had to be careful about what he said to the three presenters. Dan could play along, but he couldn't instigate anything. That would be entrapment. The very thing that Professor Sahar Aziz says was being done to Muslims after 9-11. So Dan walked a thin line, and this time he had pulled off a credible bluff and kept his cool during the entire exchange. It was a success. Dan was now more confident in his role with the three percenters, to the point where he felt comfortable enough to school them on their handling of guns. FBI agent Robin Smith remembers this. Part of the activities that Dan was involved with, with the three percent group, Mr. Crick's group, they went out and shot. The group would shoot at a gun range in a little town east of Garden City when Dan joined them at a firearms training exercise. He was shocked. It was a circus. One member had never used a firearm before. When he tried to unholster his gun, it flew out of his hands and did somersaults in the air before he finally caught it and nearly shot a fellow three percenter in the process. Dan was pissed and took control of the training session. He put the men through the same safety lessons his own father had drilled into his head from an early age. But there was one three percenter who was actually a pretty good shot. Dan had never met him before, and he was a bit annoyed. He was the vetting officer and should have been the one to decide who could join the group. But Jason Crick had invited this stranger to the training exercise without his approval. And that was the first time that Dan encountered Patrick Stein. Patrick Stein grew up working on his family's farm in a small town named Wright, Kansas. He was stocky and had short, messy hair that he often threw a baseball cap over. Throughout the years, he took on many different jobs. Farmer, truck driver, EMT, volunteer firefighter. He also had an extensive history of butting heads with the law. When Dan met him, he had been arrested 10 times. He had spent some time in jail after a drug deal gone wrong, and he battled drug and alcohol addiction throughout his life. Patrick Stein was now twice divorced. He was in his mid-40s. He was living alone in a trailer that his parents owned and had gone back to farming. Like many of the other three percenters, he spent a lot of his time consuming right-wing content. After the firearms training session ended, Patrick started discussing current events with the rest of the group. At one point, Jason Crick brought up the fact that a mosque in a nearby town was always filled with worshipers. And that's when Dan said Patrick Stein, the seemingly low-key farmer, became a different person. When you really start talking to him about uh, Muslims, Somalians, he just became irate. I hadn't heard anybody talk like that and that, that passion, that anger. I mean, he's just like, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. Patrick Stein, you know, he had a nickname, you know, the Orchid Man. Orkin Man. 
the pest control company. For Patrick Stein, the pests were Muslims, but he didn't call them pests or Muslims. His hatred ran so deep, he referred to them as cockroaches. He was extremely proud of this comparison. He'd even bragged that he coined the term, almost as if he had an advanced degree in Islamophobia. If he'd done his research, though, he'd know it wasn't original at all. Still, Dan was taken aback. Yeah, I was like, man, this guy is totally different than all the other military guys. He made the other guys look like Boy Scouts. Remember, this was the first meeting between Dan and Patrick, and Patrick already felt comfortable enough sharing these thoughts with him. Just when Dan was settling into his role as informant, this encounter with Patrick put him back on edge. A week went by, and the three percenters had another event planned, a nighttime stakeout of the Somali neighborhood in Garden City. Dan was still disturbed by that conversation with Patrick Stein. So when Patrick asked him to do a drive around during the day, show him where the Somalis lived, he was reluctant. He wanted to see it, the place, everything in the daylight, because it was going to be night. And I, I really don't want to go with this guy, man. <laughs> this guy's crazy. I don't really want to go with him. He wanted nothing to do with Patrick Stein. But where Dan saw danger, Amy and Robin saw opportunity. They needed Patrick to trust Dan because they needed to know what Patrick was thinking and potentially plotting. Amy urged Dan to be the voice of reason in case Patrick decided to go rogue. And so when Dan realized he was needed, he told Patrick he'd go with him. So we greeted me at the Dollar General store just like a, a block from the Somalian apartments and the mosque. And we pulled up in the parking lot and I got in his truck. In the truck, Dan noticed Patrick had a black Glock pistol wedged between the driver's seat and the center console. He saw a bulletproof vest and an assault rifle in the back seat. Dan and Patrick sat there, watching people walk to and from the Dollar General store. And that's when they saw them. There was two Somalian women dressed in the traditional address, and they were coming, you know, they had to walk right by the truck. To Dan, they were just two women, laughing and speaking Somali. But to Patrick, they were something else. And just to warn you, his language is shocking here. He's like, look at those fucking cockroach, ragheaded bitches, man. I did I'm just going to kill those fucking bitches right now. The women looked their way. This only made Patrick angrier. He stuck his head out of the window and continued to swear at them. Time seemed to slow down as Dan noticed the women's faces. They were standing there, stunned. He couldn't tell whether they understood Patrick's words, but he could see the fear in their eyes. It was possibly the same emotion reflected in Dan's own face. Because at this point, Patrick had placed his hand on the Glock wedged next to the console. The women had done nothing to trigger Patrick, except exist. Neither of them had made a face or comment. They probably hadn't even noticed him. But their traditional headdresses and clothing, their smiles, their presence in Garden City were enough to get a nasty, volatile reaction from him. 
And this scared Dan. I'm like, hey, you know, chill out, man. You Police are going to come, you know. Somebody's going to call the police. But Dan was an informant. He had to somehow defuse the situation without blowing his cover. How could he possibly continue to blend in without exposing he wasn't racist or suspicious of Muslims? And if he blew his cover, not only would the whole operation be over, Patrick might kill him. With all this swirling in his mind, Dan had to do something. Patrick had gripped his Glock, and Dan could not just let Patrick kill these two innocent women. He started to reach, discreetly, for the gun he always carried. And that meant something. Because as we know, Dan doesn't take guns lightly. Remember, rule number one, every gun is loaded. Rule number two, don't point a gun at anything unless you are prepared to kill. And in that moment, in broad daylight, Dan was ready. If Patrick dared to raise his gun and shoot at the two women, standing there, wide-eyed, facing them, then Dan was ready to raise his. I never pulled my gun on anybody. I was ready to pull it out, and I made it my mind. I was not going to let him kill these two innocent women. Hoping it wouldn't get to that point, Dan kept shouting at Patrick to stop. Miraculously, Patrick calmed down. But his cold stare followed the women as they disappeared into the Dollar General store. Dan let out a deep breath, but he knew this wouldn't be the end of it. The tour he took with Patrick was a pregame to the rest of the group's planned surveillance that same night. Dan couldn't stomach the thought of being in that truck with Patrick again. So as soon as he got home, he called FBI agent Amy Kuhn, the one who recruited him in the first place. I was like, man, this guy is crazy. Amy always told me, you know, just be the voice of reason, you know. I had concerns that given what Dan had told us, that Patrick Stein had, for lack of a better term, like an itchy trigger finger, that he may do something stupid or he may see something which would cause him to go off and he would do something in like a rage. And I know Dan was very concerned about Stein doing something, but my thoughts were if we could get Dan in the vehicle with Stein and talking to him, that hopefully that would not cause him to get amped up and it would keep things at an even keel. So Dan didn't back out, but he made sure to warn the FBI of exactly who they were dealing with. He's a monster. I don't know how to say. He's just, he was, to me, he was just like evil. And I, you know, reported back to the FBI. They took me serious on this. Uh, they'd never heard of this guy. I was like, man, We need to watch this guy. He is going to do something. He is, he's dangerous. They believed me. And that's when they started the shift from going from Jason Crick's militia to Patrick Stein. Everything changed after that chilling incident in February. Dan started to feel like he might have bitten off more than he could chew. At that point, I, I, yeah, I wasn't excited about it. It wasn't an adventure no more. 
It was was real. Amy's goal now was to have Patrick trust Dan enough to open up to him. And that seemed to happen when Patrick asked Dan if he would join the Kansas Security Force, or KSF for short. KSF was a different militia, one that Patrick was part of. The FBI agents needed to keep their eyes on Patrick. So if Patrick was a member of the Kansas Security Force, that meant Dan had to become a member too. He was like, so what's it going to be, man? You going you gonna to join up? So I told him, uh, yeah, I'll join you. Patrick would often go down endless rabbit holes online where he'd find 9-11 conspiracy theories and videos filled with Islamophobic rhetoric. In this digital world of racism and xenophobia, and in the physical world of like-minded individuals forming militias, Patrick was among many who shared his beliefs, where hate was the norm. That's why when he stumbled across the Kansas Security Force online in the fall of 2015, he decided to join. And he was introduced to Curtis Allen, the commanding officer of KSF. Here's how Dan describes him. He had been in the military. He was more cautious. He was the same hate, but he was more quiet. You know, he didn't like talking on the phones. He was afraid of surveillance. He was, he was, he was real calm. Unlike Patrick, who confided in Dan very quickly, Curtis was more careful about the things he said. He was paranoid about being spied on, even as he was surveilling others. But similar to Patrick, Curtis Allen struggled with alcohol and had been arrested several times in the past. Only his arrests were on domestic assault charges. This made it illegal for him to collect arms, but that didn't stop him. Curtis had a hard time keeping a job, but had recently found some stability working as a traveling salesman selling alarm systems to homes and businesses. It was work that one day led him to G&G Home Center, which sold mobile homes and trailers. Located right off Highway 83 in Liberal, Kansas, that's where Curtis met one of the owners, a man named Gavin Wright. Curtis had hoped to drum up some business with Gavin, but instead they bonded over their right-wing views and hatred of Muslims. Curtis found a friend and a future recruit for KSF. Ultimately, Patrick, Curtis, and Gavin became a close trio. And now, Dan Day was coming on board. When he did, they gave him a green t-shirt that read, When tyranny becomes law, resistance becomes duty. As a new member of KSF, Dan realized quickly that he was in for some very long meetings over the phone. The group used an app called Zello. The website describes it as the most reliable, push-to-talk, walkie-talkie app. And the group did rely on it as a safe way to keep their conversation secret. But it also did something else. The app erased distance, and that was crucial for enabling Patrick, Curtis, and Gavin to connect, especially since Patrick lived about an hour's drive from them. Every night at 9.30, 9.30 or 10 o'clock at night, they would go on for hours sometimes, just talking about malicious stuff and crazy stuff. And Dan wasn't just listening in on these calls. He was reporting everything back to the FBI. So their conversations weren't so secret after all. There came a point on some of those Zello meetings where they talked about the Muslim faith and doing things that would 
cause people in the Muslim faith to be offended, like wrapping bacon on the door, throwing a pig into the Somali business. Then they started talking about feeding Muslims to the pigs and stuff like that, because that would be the ultimate bad thing for a Muslim, essentially, I guess is what their thought was. For them, the possibilities were endless, but they all stemmed from one central thought. The Somalis deserved it. They believed that the Somalis were doing things like causing crime. Prosecutor Tony Mativi. They believed that the Somalis were doing things like financing terrorism. In their minds, they were the patriots. And they, they didn't realize that their view was so twisted that in reality, they were the antithesis of a patriot. Dan's idea of patriotism was far different from the others in the group. It was keeping members of his community safe. In fact, when he agreed to be an informant, one of the forms that Amy filled out asked for Dan's motive. On the thin line, she wrote, patriotism. He might not have realized listening to hours and hours of men spewing hate over the phone was part of the assignment. And it sure was taking its toll, but he kept at it. They could talk, you know, you could talk to them, but then they'd turn around and, you know, start talking about killing people, kidnapping people, killing innocent people. So, no, I didn't particularly like them, but I had to, that part of my persona, I had to like them. It was unclear what they would do or if a real plot would ever come to fruition, but the FBI couldn't take the risk of looking away. And as Dan told Robin, with every meeting that took place, the language became more and more hateful. I had never seen any group of individuals who regularly met with each other for the purposes of, we need to talk about this threat. We need to talk about this perceived threat in the Muslim community. If cockroaches get the U.S., which we're supposed to be a country they could never get, if they get the U.S., they know there's no place on the planet that they can't just walk in, take over, and it's death. And every time they got together, the rhetoric got a little bit louder. Refugees and all that coming in. What about stealing some of their identity and like getting credit cards and stuff in their names? And a little bit stronger. They are domestic enemies that live amongst us every fucking day. We didn't have a clear concept that they were planning to undertake a specific event or a specific attack. But it seemed to be headed in that direction. Truth and Lies, The Informant. It's a production of ABC Audio and contains reporting and interviews conducted by George Stephanopoulos Productions for the documentary, The Informant, Fear and Faith in the Heartland, streaming now on Hulu. 
This podcast was written and produced by Carrie Ann Thomas, Madeline Wood, Marwa Mowaki, and Cameron Chetavian. Additional production by Iru Ekpanobi, Audrey Mostak, and Nania McLean. Our supervising producers were Susie Liu and Sasha Aslanian. Our story consultants were Chris Donovan and Eamon McNiff of George Stephanopoulos Productions. Music by Evan Viola, scoring and mixing by Evan Viola and Rob Galang. Special thanks to George Stephanopoulos, Jennifer Joseph, Joe Park, Mike Levine, Monica De La Rosa, Brenda Salinas Baker, Josh Cohan, and Liz Alessi. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.